Um, this episode, we're going to be joined by Professor Lawrence Schiffman, who is the Judge Abraham Lieberman Professor of Hebrew and Judaic Studies at New York University. Um, we'll be discussing uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, which is uh, his expertise um, amongst uh, other things. So just get him on. Um, obviously, same as always, if anybody has any questions, feel free to ask. Also, if you're listening on podcast, um, when it will be on podcast, for those of you watching live, if you can rate and review on Apple, I appreciate it. Okay. Not sure what happened there. I'm not sure where he went. Okay, sorry everyone for the uh, delay. Um, Professor Schiffman, if you could just do that again. I don't know why you disappeared as I get you on. Okay, there we go. Now request again to join, there we go. Sorry about that. Okay, I hear you now. Okay, you can hear me, right? Yes, we can. Great. Okay, thank you very much for joining. I appreciate it. Uh, why don't we start out by giving the listeners a, a background about yourself for those who may not know. Well, I uh, started out in, uh, in terms of my advanced Judaic studies as an undergraduate at Brandeis, where I got my uh, BA, MA, and PhD. And then after one year at the University of Minnesota, I came to NYU, where I've been, with the exception, really, of... Uh, one three-year period that I went to uh, Yeshiva University to work there for three years as vice provost, came back to NYU, and uh, I am uh, currently now, besides uh, holding a chaired professor, the Judge Abraham Lieberman Professorship of Hebrew and Judaic Studies, I also uh, direct something which is called the Global Network for Advanced Research in Jewish Studies, which uh, undertakes very large-scale type projects that involve uh, international activity. So that's basically what I do. And uh, hello to everyone. Okay, so as uh, some may know, I believe your area of expertise mainly is the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> so I think we should, I guess, start out that way by, uh, actually, one, one more thing. What, what, so you have, what, did, what was your, your dissertation on? Uh, my doctoral dissertation was called Halachat Qumran. And I thought when I started, I'd do the whole of Jewish law in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Qumran, of course, is the place where the scrolls were found. But in the end, I managed to get through the introductory issues of the way they derive and understand their halachic system, and then the laws of Shabbos in great detail. Very interesting. So, so like you said, you, you referenced the Dead Sea Scrolls. So why don't we, I guess, start out by just by giving a basic overview of what it is. I actually, over this past Shabbos, I was in Lakewood, and I asked a couple of people, you know, do they know what it is? And they never heard of it in my life. So it's just, you know, it's your people. I mean, plenty of people listening probably did hear of it, but anyone that hasn't heard of them, what are they? Okay, let's put this in a very simple way. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a group of fragments representing, or in a few cases, almost complete manuscripts, of what would have been in antiquity a library of approximately 900 scrolls, most of them in Hebrew, some in Aramaic, and a very few in Greek, that were located at what was apparently the center of a sectarian group 
near the Dead Sea and were discovered from 1947 on. And these represent a tremendous library of material, which basically divides into three parts. About a third of it is Tanakh. You have parts of every book except Esther. A third of it is Second Temple literature, which is basically what Chazal would call Sfarim Chitzoniyim. And the last third is the literature of the sectarian group that most scholars identified as what is essentially the third sect in Josephus, along with the Prushim and the Sukim, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Most scholars identify them as the Essenes. I have some questions about that, but that is the majority view. And these materials are a tremendous, tremendous boon for understanding what was going on in terms of the debates and discussions and disagreements in Jewish life, especially in the second and first centuries BCE, early first century CE. So it means basically during the period of the Hashmonaim and running through the period of the Herodians, Hordes HaMelech, and running up through the Chorban structure of the Temple in 70. Mm -hmm. So what... what just for people in years, to give them actually year, what was the first year that these were written? Until okay, 70? Now, the word written is a problematical written word, because today, <laughs> when you use the word write, you often mean to compose. So as long as we understand, the dates I'm giving you now are copying dates, not composition. The earliest copied materials there would date from something around the, uh, the year 250 BCE, maybe a little earlier. And the latest ones would be in the early part of the first century CE, let's say the year 30, 40, something like that. After That's the period in which these texts were copied. Because you have to be careful when you discuss this, because, of course, the composition, you have books of the Torah there. So the composition is, of course, much more ancient. Right, right. It reminds me of people in the yeshiva world seeing Rishayim, you see manuscripts, but those were, most of those were not actually written by them. They were copied, like, yeah. like you're saying. Exactly. So... How, so getting back to you, now that we gave an overview of them, how and why were you drawn to the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, I was actually drawn by some uh, funny semi-coincidences because in my senior year in college, I wrote an honors thesis on one of the scrolls, which is called the Hodayot, which of course is translated, of course, the Thanksgiving scroll, has nothing to do with the holiday of Thanksgiving, as I often joke. But uh, I was asked on a surprise to give a talk about it once on Thanksgiving at a shul I was visiting. But in general, this is a fascinating, this text, the Odayot, is a fascinating poetic text with many very beautiful poems. And also the poet explains how he sees it as a God-given gift that he can put the words on the lines. That's his terminology. At any rate, this particular uh, text has often been compared to Tehillim. And I was, it was suggested to me to do that honors thesis. And then the following semester, as I started graduate school, I took one course in Dead Sea Scrolls. Then after a while, I, I was looking for a dissertation topic, and I wanted something that would combine both things in the fields of Tanakh and Chazal. And the easy answer for that was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I got into it and eventually you could say never left because originally Dead Sea Scrolls was not its own field. But as things developed over the years, especially with the full release of the scrolls, the, because remember there was this whole period when the people who were supposed to publish them weren't publishing them. It's a whole fascinating story. And uh, beginning in about 1994, there was a reorganization of the publication team and I was asked to join. And from that 
point on, the field became of great public interest, and certainly no one in it was going to get out of it. And still, until today, we constitute a sort of interesting group of something, it's close to maybe 100 scholars in the world, but who are uh, working together on this stuff all the time and uh, are good friends. So it's a thing that it became something that you don't, you don't get out of. But when I got into it, it was, oh, how do you find a dissertation topic? This stuff looks interesting. Right. Do you want to relate that story about how it wasn't released for a long time? And yeah, well, the problem, is, the problem is that the, the scrolls were the initially, you have to now retrace a little bit the history of how they were found. So the first scrolls were found in 1947, and these are the so-called seven complete scrolls, which probably people listening have seen in the Israel Museum in the Shrine of the Book, the Heichal Sefer. And those scrolls were acquired by Israel, and some before 48 and Others in 1950 were acquired by Israel. However, the continued exploration, the area of Qumran where they were found, was in the part of British Mandatory Palestine that was conquered by the Jordanians during the Israeli War of Independence in, in May of 1948. From May of 1948 on, I mean, I hate to get it to side issue. The war really started in November immediately after the announcement of the partition plan and its success in the UN. And I just want to mention, since we just finished Shabbos Nachamu, I want to mention that uh, the person who bought the first scrolls for Israel, Professor Sukenik, who was the father of Yigael Yadin, Yadin got that name, the great archaeologist, because it was a code name during the War of Independence. Anyhow, his father, Professor Sukenik, on the night of November 29th, when Israelis-to-be, because at those time they were called Palestinians, you could laugh at that, but it's true, Palestinian Jews were dancing in the streets after the vote for the partition plan, which would have given a much less smaller state of Israel than we're used to today, right? He was reading those words in the scroll of Isaiah, Yeshayahu, which was one of the original scrolls that he acquired. And he writes about the moving experience of doing that. Everybody else was downstairs, but he was reading the words of Yeshayahu in a scroll more than 2,000 years old. So at any rate, to get back to the story that I was supposed to be telling, what happened is that the, after 1948, after the war, the area of Qumran was in that piece of mandatory Palestine that was conquered by Jordan. So the Jordanians did the right thing. They sent scholars and archaeologists to find the site from which the scrolls had come. And then they hired Bedouin from among the same tribes that had excavated, that had that had excavated illegally and had sold these scrolls. And they kept on, the Bedouin kept on finding more scrolls on the weekends while the archaeologists were back in East Jerusalem, you know, just uh, taking a day off. And by the time they got finished between what the Bedouin found and what the archaeologists found, the fragments, some, it depends how you want to count, about 80,000 fragments of the jigsaw puzzle, as they call it, that could be reduced into 20,000 fragments when you put as many pieces together as you could, which came from about 800 scrolls or 850 scrolls, were sitting there in the museum in East Jerusalem, and a Christian group of Christian scholars was brought to edit and publish the scrolls. And by the time Israel took East Jerusalem in 1967, they had done only a small percentage of what they were supposed to do. Whereas all the scrolls in the possession of Israel that had been acquired before 48 were published, or after 48, but they were all published. And the, uh, the Israeli government tried to give these people the chance to finish the work. 
and only beginning in essentially 1991 were they overthrown and put out of business and replaced by a new group led by Professor Emanuel Tobe of Hebrew University that consisted of 60 scholars who by the year 2009 had published every word of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the manner that it should have been done many, many years ago. So in, there was a whole period, therefore, when much of the material, 25% of it had been published, and one could do scholarship and talk about that 25%, but the rest of it had not been published. So I have made the comment that the people who didn't publish did me a great favor, because I would not have been able to be on the team that published the scrolls had they done their job. And I made a lot of money lecturing when everybody was talking about the whole stink that was going on about the non-publication of the scrolls and the scrolls were first being published by the new team and had they done their work i would have lost out on that so it's a kind of a funny historical fact but anyhow that's the que answer to that to that question with only, only a few digressions right <laughs> i gotcha so about the scrolls you mentioned obviously that they were uh, two thousand years old so what allowed them to be preserved so well it seems like there are a number of features that made it possible for them to be preserved. First of all, some of them, we don't know how many, because the excavations, most of it was done from illegal excavation, but many, many of them were apparently stored in those jars, big jars, which were really produced probably for food storage, but were adapted to this purpose. So that was one thing, and, and wrapped in scrolls. And uh, you, anyone who has been to uh, certain Sephardic type of services knows that they have a, 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 a cloth inside. And that is what is called in the Gomorrah, mitpachat asfarim, which is the cloths that they used to wrap the scrolls in. And those cloths are actually found inside some jars or on there are pieces of them on some scrolls. So they apparently had some of them were properly wrapped and properly stored. Another thing has to do with the climate. And I'm not really expert in this, but apparently the climate in the caves was ideal for preserving these scrolls, which is the likely reason why, except for some other cave discoveries, the so-called Bar Kokhba documents, right, from the Bar Kokhba revolt of 132 to 5 and from somewhat earlier, except for those and Masada, there are no other ancient scrolls that have been found. However, the other uh, final factor is that the place was so isolated that no one went there. There may be one other factor which has to do with how the skins were prepared, but it doesn't look like the skins were prepared in most cases in a way that was somehow unusual, but it does seem that the, the traditional methods of preparing the skins made them last for quite a long time. But um, beyond that, I think uh, a lot of it might be good fortune. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't necessarily like you said, produce on special skins in order to last a long time. It's just they ended up like it's a good fortune that that's why it happened. So to right. Speak. I think that's what, well, the, the other thing is that the use of the type of, of animal skin processed in the various ways, it's a very complicated, anybody who studies Gomorrah knows how complicated this is, you know, the different kind of skins, and all the rest of this business, which we still don't really know, and we don't make them the way they used to make them. We're, we're using European parchment now, so don't tell anybody. People might get worried, but there's Eastern and Western parchment, and this is Eastern parchment, and we today use Western parchment. So the, the point that I want to make, though, is that the whole system of using parchment is designed, in those days you had papyrus, but papyrus doesn't last anywhere near as long. Although there are some papyri that were preserved from ancient times. <laughs> There's a million Greek papyri from Egypt 
believe it or not, right? And these have all kinds. Of, by the way, there are Jewish documents in the papyri from Egypt, by the way. So, but the point I want to make is that I think skin was chosen. One of the reasons for using animal skin is that animal skin is in itself uh, a, a permanent type of a of a uh, an arrangement for writing in antiquity when compared to other things. Right. So let's jump back a little bit. I know you mentioned the, the consensus, but who, discuss a little bit more about who wrote them and, and what, what were okay. they. So now we have to realize before we start that large numbers of scrolls were brought to this place from elsewhere. And this is a very important point for a reason which I'll just explain in a second. But the, the archaeological excavations of this site have revealed that the site was used from approximately 100 BCE by this group. Now, for anybody who is uh, somehow or another expert in the various kings that ruled at the time, this means that they started out probably sometime during the rule of Yochanan Hukanis. And the heyday runs from him to Yanai HaMelech, Alexander Janaeus, as he's called in English, and from there you sort of begin to come to less of a heyday, you might say. Now, many of the scrolls, perhaps half, who knows, more, were brought there from elsewhere because they, they've been dated either by carbon-14 dating or by the study of the script to before this period of the place that the place was being used. So when we say who copied them, we have to assume that many of them were copied around the country by various Jews whose identity we have no idea of. We do know who copied the sectarian scrolls, in fact, who authored the sectarian scrolls, who copied the sectarian scrolls, and who collected the library. And that is this group of sectarians. Now, at this point, we hit the point of who is the sect. Most times when people say, who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, they really mean, who was the sect that wrote the sectarian scrolls and gathered the rest, and may have copied some of the others. Actually, the sectarian group has a funny dialect of Hebrew. Their funny dialect of Hebrew, instead of he and she meaning who and he, it's got an extra hey on the end. It looks like huahia. Key spelled kafyud aleph. They have uh, lo spelled almost all the time with a vav. Some long endings instead of instead of chem chema. It's these strange strange dialect. It's similar to the dialect of the Samaritans. At any rate. This uh, group is identified by most scholars as the Essenes, who are the third sect that's mentioned by Josephus when he explains what the Jewish sects were right after the completion, not of the Maccabean revolt, but the completion of the establishment of the dynasty of the Hashmonaim. Now, I'm not sure if people know this, but you have to know that after the Hanukkah story takes place in 164 BCE, Yehuda Maccabee and his army is driven out by the Seleucid Syrians. And after they drive them out, Yehuda is killed in 160 in battle out in a field somewhere. Now, only in 152 does his brother, Yonatan, succeed in establishing the dynasty. And the reason he succeeded was because he supported one particular competitor for the throne of Seleucid Syria, and he supported the right one, and he was given the right to rule over Eretz Yisrael by that competitor, and he returned and took over as the ruler and Kohen Gadol. So the point is, in when this, you start the kingdom of the Hashmonaim, which lasts till 63 BC, when the Romans came in. 
So now the point is, and of course, 63 BCE is not the Korban, that's 70 CE. The Romans ruled indirectly or directly over Eretz Israel for that whole period. Now, why am I telling this whole story? Because when Yohanan came in, it seems that there was a group of Kohanim that were dissatisfied by the fact that he linked up with the Prushim to clean up the Hellenization that had led to the whole thing. He blamed the Stukim, the Sadducees, for all that happened there, the extreme Hellenization, the bringing in of, of, of idols into the base of Mikdash, all these terrible things. So he hooked up with the Prushim, and the base of Mikdash was being conducted according to their views in Halacha. Now once that happened, a group of Stukim went off and formed the sect we're talking about. Now, at the point that that happens comes the crucial question, is that group included in Josephus's term Essenes? That's possible. By the way, Essenes in Hebrew is Skim, but that's modern Hebrew. We don't know this term. I say modern Hebrew from the Renaissance on. When Jews started reading Josephus in Greek, they learned about the Essenes. And so they started calling them Essenes. But we never have that word in antiquity. And this group is not mentioned in the sources of Chazal. They're not mentioned in the New Testament. So nobody knows who they are. And it's thought by most scholars that the group of the Dead Sea Scrolls is part of this group of Essenes. For anybody who's trying to take notes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. I don't expect anyone taking notes, but someone may want to look it up later. E-S-S-E-N-E-S. So that group may very well be the sect. If it's true, they evolved from a group of Stuki priests. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to get off topic here, but I just want to, like, a parenthesis, so to speak. You mentioned the Prushim. Is it correct to say the Prushim for most people's minds? Would that be... Like Orthodox Jewry today, I don't want to paint to the broad brush, but is that <laughs> descended from them? Is that the Prushim or how would you define that? Yeah, this is a funny kind of question. Look, the Prushim are the forerunners of Chazal. There's no question about that. Right. right? The only problem is that from an academic point of view, when we, we understand the term Orthodox to be the form of traditional Judaism that exists in response to the existence of competitors, so, in other words, what we call orthodox doesn't exist until there's reform. It's just Judaism. Now, the problem is, so we, we have a different way of looking at it. Our basic way of looking at it is that the Prussian were the forerunners of Chazal. And they, if you look, they overlap in time with the Tanaim. And this, you can't separate in a certain sense because we actually use this term Prushi until the Korban. And we use the term Tana from Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai on. So they're basically the, the forerunners. But these forerunners, when you try to compare it to today, it's very, it's, it's very difficult because they're responding to totally different challenges. They're responding to 100% different challenges than the ones that Orthodox Jewry, as we understand it today, is responding to. So I, I, I don't go for that analogy, but I'll tell you in parentheses, despite that, that regarding the Dead Sea sectarians, there is one article, and now I saw a second, actually, I should say, which try to tie them to the Turi Karta. They say that they're similar to the Turi Karta. The reason why the article, the first article is no good, the second one is not so central, but the first one is no good, is the person only read one Turi Karta source. So how can you claim by reading one particular source that someone's parallel to someone else? But it's hard to make those parallels. But of course, obviously, today's Orthodox Jewry understands itself as being the successor of the successor of the successor to the Prussian. 
Right. So actually, we may as well continue a little bit more with the Prushim. So, but according to the Prushim, the foreigners of Chazal, in regards to the scrolls, even though it's about the, the sectarian group, what, what can we take out from them in regards to how life was for the Prushim? Well, with the then? One really interesting thing, first of all, is that there are a number of really interesting places where you can see the views that were opposed to the ones that Chazal represents. Now, in some of these, this is really important because of a very interesting detail. These texts are hundreds of years earlier than the earliest Chazal texts. Now, if someone would say to you, how do I know that these things are really ancient? Well, from Chazal, we only know because they pass on a tradition. But here you could go and you could see that some of them can be documented. Now, this works in one of two ways. Either what we call common Judaism in the field, things that all the groups are doing. So if I want to find documentation that Shabbos begins before Shkia, have any problem because these guys tell me that when the sun is distant by the its own diameter from the horizon, you should stop doing malacha. And then they quote the same pasuk that Chazal quote. And obviously that this was plain old traditional Judaism. Anybody who kept kept the Shabbat knew that Shabbos starts a little earlier, and he knew that it's the Pasuk Shamor Yom HaShabbat Lakad show that commands that. And he knew that. So these guys, right, were doing it, right? Now, of course, they don't have a distinction of the Rabbanon and, and Doraisa, the Rabbanon, they don't have that whole idea. So probably they thought the Torah requires that you start it earlier, but here that's the common element. Now I'll give you the, the, the other possibility. They sometimes have a law which is a polemic against the one of the Prushim. But we have no text which tells us the Prushim had this view. I'll give you the most famous example that everybody talks about. It's the law of Nitzok. Now, the law of Nitzok says that if you pour from a vessel which is Tahor into a vessel which is Tameh, the Tuma does not go backwards. Derech Agav, this is not the case in Kashrus for anybody who's interested in Yoridea. But the Tuma does not go backwards. And the Tuma doesn't go backwards, but according to one of these texts that we have, the Tuma does go backwards. Now we know the Tuma going backwards is the position of the Stukim. So here we see what is the position that is being argued against in the question of Nitzok, which is brought up in the Mishnah in Yadayim. Or I can give you another example, which is that these people do not accept Chazal's view of full Yom. I wrote an article years ago. I had nine examples of specific places, but it's obvious that Bichlal, they don't accept the idea. For anyone who doesn't know, Tevul Yom is the idea that a person who has been immersed on the last day of purification period, but didn't yet have sunset on that last day, is already considered pure for certain purposes, but not to be able to eat from sacrifices uh, or truma. But anyhow, such a person is partially pure. But the, the, the sectarians say the person is zero pure. Absolutely not. Because the Torah says, which they understand not the way the Gomorrah does, but they understand it literally, that the sun has to go down, and until the sun goes down, the guy's impure, woman, whoever it is, is impure. Now, they have it nine times. So what we see is the opposition to Chazal's view, but we also see someone is bothering to oppose it, the view had to exist. So just to sum this part up, we can have common laws, 
where we see these people have the same tradition. I could give many, many examples. And then we also have places where, because this group is opposing something, it proves the early dating of something in Chazal, which we otherwise could not historically prove by any kind of, of proof. And then the other uh, possibility is that we can simply come to understand what Chazal are talking about in a given law by seeing that there's another position that somebody held, which we might not know about, might know otherwise. That is in the area of halacha. In the area of ideas, there's a tremendous amount. Because one of the things that Josephus told us about the Essenes, and it's true about this sectarian group, is that they believe in predestination. And predestination is a, a belief which traditional Judaism does not accept. As Josephus puts it very nicely, the Prussian believe in, and I think it's true about Chazal, they believe that God can uh, control what goes on in our lives, but that most choices are, almost all choices are made by us with free will. So this is a very big difference, but we can't understand when you read in Pure Keavos, that God knows in advance what's going to be, but humans have free will. Well, here we see the opposite, that there were Jews with the opposite position in Second Temple times. On the other hand, if you start look about one God, you know, and stuff like this, you're going to find they completely have the same view. By the way, the earliest post-Tanakh mention, which is of the reading of the Shema, is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a work called The Rule of the Community, which clearly is alluding to the reading of the Shema morning and, and night. No question about it. It's not literally because it's these, all the, using all the words of the Shema to describe how you pray in the morning and you pray in the evening when you get up and when you go to sleep. And it's all the words from the Shema made into, it's a poem. And it's clear from the poem that the, the author is referring to reading, reading of the Shema as, as we understand it. Wow. Well, that's very, very, very fascinating. Uh, by the way, anybody that is uh, watching, listening, feel free to ask questions to Professor Schiffman if you uh, would like to type over here. So how, how would you say they are, they, are they, seems like they're pretty similar to the Stukim. In what ways do they differ from them, though? Oh, so here's a really big point, because a lot of colleagues have raised this as serious limitation on can we really parallel them with Stukim, even if a lot of their halachic material seems to be parallel. So, for example, as far as we know, again, we only know this stuff from Josephus, but Josephus gives us the impression that the Stukim did not believe that God interfered in the affairs of human beings. And what I just mentioned, this idea of, of, of believing in predestination, is opposite to Josephus's description of the Stukim, which, although he doesn't mention this word, is like the real Epicureans. That is, the Epicureans who gave us the word Epicurus, like the real Epicureans who believe that God has nothing to do with what goes on in the world once he created it. And this appears from Josephus to be the position of the Stukim, and these people have a completely another point from Josephus, they Stukim don't believe in angels and stuff like that, and here we have a, a lot of stuff about angels, but, but again, we're talking now about the sectarian text. There are some texts that they have where this stuff would not be relevant. A very important thing is we now understand something else about the Stukim. Between Josephus and the account in, in the uh, Megillat Tanit, in, just for a moment, I don't know if the people actually know what Megillat Tanit is. It's a work of Chazal, which everybody knows, probably every listener here knows my Hanukkah in the Gemara and Shabbos. My Hanukkah is a quotation from the Megillat, Megillat Tanit. It first gives a date in Aramaic, and after giving the date in Aramaic and a summary of what happened on that date, 
it gives what we call the scolion, which is interpretation, which is, you know, that on the 25th they came in and they found there was no oil, etc. Cetera, et cetera. That whole account is from the scolion of Megillat Tanit. Now that work is a whole work which Shulchan Aruch tells us has been canceled because it's a work which is Allah and Shulchan Aruch, Batla Megillat Tanit. Because the Megillah, Megillat Tanit, is a list of days on which you are not allowed to fast. There are many holidays. And these many holidays would be in contradiction to our calendar. So, for example, Antanas Esther is a holiday, according to this work. It's the holiday, the 13th of Adar is the holiday of the killing of Nicanor, who was one of the generals who fought against the Jews during Hanukkah time. So, at any rate, the reason I'm, I'm giving this whole spiel right now is to make the point that according to Megillat Tanit and according to Josephus, the Sadducees seem to be great literalists. They seem to take the Torah completely literally. It seems now that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the type of interpretation they use, which is much more literal but not totally literal, that we now are having an understanding of the type of interpretation that is being described there as this more literal type explanation. It's not really strictly literal. I mean, this happens in our own day. We talk about fundamentalist Christians. Well, fundamentalist would mean they're really literalist. Ask a fundamentalist Christian if they think God has an arm. They'll, of course, understand that the arm of God means his power the same way we do. So the point is, we use these sometimes when we say someone's a literalist, they're not really literalist the way we say that Stukin. And that also explains, just it's not our topic today, but there are very great parallels between the Stukin and the Karaites. And there are some parallels between the Dead Sea Scroll sect and the Karaites. And the Karaites also, they, they're not really literalists the way we learn in school. If you study the Karai text, you see that they have all kind of interpretation. The interpretation is not what we agree with, and it, it tends to be sometimes overly literal, but nonetheless, it's it's a form of interpretation. Right. So, so similar to this, that like the Stukim, uh, according to Chazal, would be like obviously a heretical group, uh, we have a Karsim, so to speak. So would this, the Dead Sea Scroll sect would be as well? Well, it, it, from the point of view of Chazal, the Dead Sea Scrolls would be regarded as some kind of, of heretics, no question. However, you see, the, it, the problem is not in, for example, believing in God, uh, observing Shabbos holidays, eating kosher. The earliest tefillin, by the way, I just want to point this out, the earliest tefillin and probably the earliest mikvahs are at Qumran from the Dead Sea Scrolls sectarian. So it's a little bit different than what we usually think about when we think about somebody, you know, with this expression today, you know, off the derech. I mean, these people, they were stricter than Chazal. For example, they would not allow you to make a salad on Shabbos. Now, I know, of course, we have questions about if you make it too fine, but the bottom line is they would not allow you to do anything like that. There are all kinds of, of, of great stringencies that they have. So they tend generally to be stricter. And that's just a general thing that we know, that the, the situation of, of, of today, where you have groups which are more lenient, or perhaps discounting obligations that we see as obligations, right? that's not the challenge of the older, earlier times. Often the challenge of earlier times is from groups that are actually, you might say, to the right, which is what led to this claim that the, the guy who suggested uh, comparing them to the Torikarta. But one of the things about the sectarian texts is that the sectarian texts do have a tremendous amount of hatred for outsiders, very sectarian mentality. But I want to mention one thing, because we're, we, we, we need to remember that we have here, again, not only the earliest Tanakh, but a whole bunch of 
non-sectarian Second Temple literature. So just as an example, what we're talking about, Chazal mentioned only two such texts, Ben Sira and Ben Lana. Ben Sira is quoted as if it's kosher, and uh, 11 times or something by Chazal. And here we have parts of the original Hebrew of Ben Sira between what we have in the scrolls, little fragments, and more serious uh, scroll from Masada, and with the Geniza fragments, we, we now have most of the original Hebrew of, of, of Ben Sira. But this, be, previous to these ancient discoveries of the scrolls and, 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 and Masada, we had no way to prove that the Hebrew texts from the Middle Ages went back to the Hebrew texts, which are the ones that Chazal had in front of them. So now we can read Ben Sira the way Chazal could read Ben Sira, which we couldn't do before. And then Chazal also mentioned a book called Ben Lana. We have no idea what that is. But we have many, many books which don't seem to be unkosher in any way, but Chazal would have objected to them because they object to the existence of anything, any written books other than the Sfarim of Tanakh. And then furthermore, we have here Tanakh books, which give us a lot of understanding of things that Chazal are talking about, about the way in which the books were physically constructed and stuff like this, and also some of the textual issues. I was going to say, uh, is the text in, the, in the, uh, the Tanakh that we have there, is it exactly the same that we have today? Are there differences? Well, this is a simple, a oversimplified question. And by the way, a person just put on a question, which I want to come to afterwards. So, uh, but I see they disappear very quickly. I don't know if they stay on your screen. So you can remind me if I forgot. So the point is like this. The Tanakh in Qumran comes in a number of varieties. I want to first start by, in a certain sense, excluding a type of text, although it's very important. There's a type of text where they write it into their Hebrew dialect. So it's like if it's, I don't know if anybody here is on, on has seen this, but there are people who translate the Tanakh into modern Hebrew, and of course many schools translate the Tanakh orally into modern Hebrew. So at any rate, right, they uh, have texts where they translate it to that funny dialect I talked about before. These apparently were used for internal use, who knows. Then we have texts that are essentially identical to ours. We call them Proto-Masoretic. Then we have a very small number of texts that have commonalities with the Hebrew texts from which the Septuagint was translated, and some that have commonalities with the Samaritan text. Now, in these latter two groups, there are what essentially are interpretations added to the text. And this is an important feature of some of the biblical texts because these people did not distinguish in the way Chazal did, you might say, between God's word and their word. And so what happens there is the uh, situation in which you've got texts of Tanakh, and I'll give you a very easy example, which is similar to the Samaritan Torah that exists until today, where I'm in Sefer B'midbar, this is a particular text, and I'm in Sefer B'midbar, and then what do they do? They stick in quotes from Devarim to explain what's going on. But well, this is all explanatory. So there's, there's various kinds of texts. There are texts that are essentially the same as ours. We get to Masada, where the biblical texts are, of course, a little bit later. And then we get to the Bacopa Caves, where, again, it's, there it's all what we call proto-Masoretic. Why do we say proto-Masoretic? It's Nusach HaMesora minus the vowels and minus the trup, which were not developed until later. They were developed in the time of the Moraim. Now, 
So at any rate, now, should we get to these questions? Do you still have them on your screen? Yeah. I, got I, the I can, car yeah. question, I remember. I may remember them all. I don't know. The car yeah, so ride question. There was two of them. Well, one was, what's the, what's the, you, you alluded to this, what's their correlation to the Karayim? And the other one is, did they influence the Karayim like Purushim to Chazal? Yeah. Those are the ones you're referring to. Wait, is the, okay, so here's the important thing to understand. The Karaites probably had little or no direct knowledge of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They had knowledge about the Tzdukim, and they understood that in certain ways they were following a tradition. The problem that we have is we don't know how they could have known there's one Karaite source who refers to cave dwellers. And we just don't know if they're talking about the Dead Sea Scroll sack or they not. So what we know is that there are many parallels. So that's the difference. In the case of Prushim and Chazal, it's a continuity which is acknowledged. Some of the people are the same. They're, they, I mentioned this before, that the way we use the terms overlap. The people who are the Prushim become the Tanayim. It's the same people, basically, becoming more developed. What distinguishes the Tanayim from the Prushim is that the Tanayim are already gathering texts as opposed to just having traditions. So what happens already, that that's not the case here. And also, in between Prushim to Tanayim, there is a, a historical continuity between the Dead Sea sectarians, which go out of existence with the Hormon, and the rise of the Karite movement in the in the eight, in the eighth century, so you can't see that it's that there's any kind of continuity. But having said that, there are a lot of parallels, and some good scholars have put together quite about a bit of this material. The second question, you have to remind me now. What was the original? One? What, what, what what was you you had alluded to this? Said you want to get into, it, but what was their correlation to the Karium? I think to the Karium. Well. The Karaites hold these typical, some of these typical stooky things. Look, examples about the Karaites, like, is the Karaites didn't accept all of these, any rabbinic enactments. So these people don't accept, they have no rabbinic enactments, they don't accept any of this stuff. The other thing is that the, the Karaites have certain lingo. For example, the leader of the sect is called the Moreh HaTzedek. Now we know this term later was used by regular Jews. But the Karaites picked up that term very early for their teachers. And there's a lot of terminology. Another deal is one of the ways in which interpretation takes place in the, in, in the works of the Dead Sea Scrolls is a type of hekesh, of analogy. Now, this form of hekesh rules like there's no tomorrow with the Karaites, and it's called kios. Now, they have none of the other rules for interpretation that Chazal had. So what appears to be the case is that like the ancient let's call it Stuki, sad you see, we also call it in the field Sadakite because they benate Sadok are mentioned all the time in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This type of halacha is, ends up with the Karite. So I have to step back for a second. We now know from the scrolls and other sources, in ancient times, and still today in very minimal sense, there are two schools of halacha. There is the one that we call the Pharisaic Rabbinic. That's the one that we go by. But there's a whole thing which we call Sadyutitstuki. That is the halacha of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the halacha of the Book of Jubilees, Sefahayovlim, which is a Second Temple book, which we know about. Originally, we knew about an only Ethiopic translation, a few Greek fragments, but now we have parts of the original Hebrew from Qumran. Then it's the halacha of the Samaritans, or the Kutim, right? because there are still Samaritans until today living in Israel and also in the West Bank they have in Shechem and living in, in Cholon and I actually visited their, their shul 
Last time it was in Israel. Okay. And then the Karaites follow this halachic system. It's just that those groups lost out. So because they lost out, the mainstream of Judaism is the mainstream of Judaism, which is the Pharisaic rabbinic one that we're used to. So this whole trend was there, and these groups represent this trend, and it's a trend that basically the destruction of the temple sent into a kind of backwater, but it continued in certain ways. So anyhow, so the, the big example of this is when is Shavuos? All these groups like the Tzadukim have Shavuos and, uh, counting from a Sunday, right? Which, is, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls sect also counts Shavuos from a Sunday. Not the Sunday you think of Cholomoed, but they count starting on the Sunday, which is after the last day of the holiday. How reliable is the Vermeish translation? Vermeish translation is a pretty good translation, and... Um, That'll get to, you're going to ask me later about where you can find the stuff. The Vermeish is a pretty good translation. He didn't do a too bad a job. Okay, we'll, we'll get there. But first, just want to get a few things before that, the relevant reading material is, uh, how, how, what way are, are the Dead Sea Scrolls relevant today? Okay. I mean, we, so, yeah, somebody them. asked, are there any groups? That was the question the guy asked. Are there any groups? So he much more. It also has an importance for Christians because Christianity derives from Judaism as it existed in the second and first centuries BCE. Now the problem is that in studying the, the early Christianity, the scholars who studied early Christianity had nothing to look at originally except rabbinic texts. After that, they got some various other second temple texts, and we have to remember also the Apocrypha, which were preserved in Catholic Bibles, but are 12 Jewish books. You know, here's a really funny thing. Every Catholic has the books of the Maccabees, and no Jew has the books of the Maccabees. I laugh about this every, every time I, I think about it. But anyhow, right? You, so I want to find so out. It, it was just recently, I was jumping in for a second, somebody, not only you know, academic editions, but someone recently in Bnei Brak made like a yeshivish critical edition, actually, pretty recently. I don't know if you saw it. Of Maccabees? Maccabee and Aleph, yeah, it's very nice. I can send you pictures after, yeah, very, about two years ago. Oh, you'll have to email me the name of this, who it is. Well, look, the truth of the, ma the, truth of the matter is that there's fascinating material in these books, right? Now, at any rate, the point I want to make here is that when the scrolls came, they first, there was an excessively crazy response that they thought they're going to find out either the truth of Christianity or the disproof of Christianity. Then, once that craziness stopped, a lot of very good scholars, some of whom I work with closely, have been working to understand the Jewish background of Christianity better. And uh, you can understand it a lot better when you have a wider understanding of what the possible trends going on in Judaism were at the time. But this is despite the fact that none of these sectarians is mentioned in the New Testament, and that the New Testament mostly sees the opponents of Christianity as the Prushim, and therefore it's loaded with data about how to be a Jew as a Prushi, going to shul, you know, putting on filling, all these things, and there's no data about any of these groups. So, but having said that, the Christian scholars have found a lot of interest in it. There are no people who practice Dead Sea Scrolls Judaism, because the Dead Sea Scrolls are a discovery that came out of an archaeological rune. So it's like expecting people to be practicing, I, I don't know what, you know, ancient Roman religion, because we have great archaeological finds from ancient Rome. Or people read classical literature, they don't go out and start, you know, worshiping the Greek gods. 
Right. So I want, I want to ask you something following up on this, and similar. Someone asked something similar. In what way are these girls relevant to Orthodox, you know, religious Jewry today? And someone asked, kind of, are there any here? Is there any part of the Orthodox community any interest in Dead Sea Scrolls? I guess those are similar questions. So I'll just roll them together. I, I was many years ago. I met a shochet, and uh, this shochet, he was asking me what I do, and I'm discussing with him. He says, "Oh, you want to say we should paskin that way?" So look. There's no practical relevance. The relevance is if you're interested in understanding Jewish history, and if you're interested in understanding the history of the text of the Tanakh, which is not all that popular in religious circles, but nonetheless, and if you're interested in understanding like the, some of the, the opponents and the disagreements in a wider context that you can see it, that Chazal are recording. Now, there's no practical relevance, but there's one other very big relevance, which is, of course, this, like all the other great archaeological discoveries from the, certainly in Eretz Israel, uh, authenticate the, the truth of the Jewish claim that this is the land where we came from. And, of course, that's a very important thing. Now, I want to mention in parentheses that this is actually not the only such major discovery. I've pointed out many times that there are three major discoveries in terms of the, in terms of the, uh, our, our, let's say, last 150 years or so. There's the Cairo Geniza, all those manuscripts that came from there. There's this material, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and associated other ancient manuscripts that have been found. And then there is the archival material that is now available because the Soviet Union fell. Not only about the period of the Soviet period, but also a tremendous amount of material about the period of the czars. So the bottom line is that we have gotten three enormous, enormous, let's say, groups of material, corpora of material, that allow us to, to understand our, our history much better. And I personally, of course, let's just say I take the, what I hate to say this, but practically speaking, maybe a minority view, that we are obligated to know our history. It says so in the end of Devarim's, and people don't seem to care about it, but, but uh, it's an important thing to understand. Practical relevance. Somebody wanted to know if we can know anything about the, ancient, the age of the world from these books. No, there's nothing about the age of the world. Gotcha. So let's. What what are some suggested reading materials uh, on on the Dead Sea Scrolls and and actually from the actual text that you would suggest oh. to the general public and to the so Orthodox public? Now here's the here's the problem. The first of all, I wrote a book called Reclaiming the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think it's your best introduction. That's the first thing. Now somebody mentioned the Vermeesh translation. The sad reality is that unless you're willing to spend some serious money, not enormous, but serious, you're not going to get the original Hebrew text because they're not available free anywhere. There are here or there some texts online. They're not available free. And the reason they're not available free is because the publishers who publish them invest enormous money. I myself just completed, we're waiting for the publisher to give us a sample, a new edition of one of the larger scrolls, the Temple Scroll. There are, some, five, there are five manuscripts. This is a complete halachic text. And it, it's this this work, right? Is it, probably going to cost three hundred, four hundred dollars, and mostly they're bought by universities in digital form today. But there's no, you can't help it because if you looked at the critical apparatus that we created with Greek and Hebrew and and Syriac and all this kind of stuff, right? They, it's it's going to cost a fortune to, and three hundred people are going to buy this book in the whole world, three hundred universities. So the bottom line is that the easiest way to get the text still is in English. 
you can get it from Vermesh. Now, if you go online, you may find, I think there may, you may be able to find a download of what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls Study Edition. That's an outdated, but nonetheless, I don't know, 95% okay, right? Outdated edition of all the manuscripts that are non-biblical. Now, if you want to get the, to own the real scrolls, your best bet is to buy the one volume collection. This is all the stuff is going to be from Brill Publishers in, in, in uh, Leiden. And you can get the, uh, you can get the uh, one volume of all the Tanakh that exists in Qumran, edited by Eugene Ulrich. And you can get from uh, Don Parry and Emmanuel Tove, the Dead Sea Scrolls Reader, which is two volumes, English and Hebrew, of all the non-biblical scrolls, including all the small fragments. The pro I mean, the, the total, if somebody wants to buy it, I don't know, it's a couple hundred dollars to get that stuff. So that's what I'm saying. But you can read the non-biblical, either in Vermeesh or getting, if you can get the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls study edition online free, right? That's all. But then, of course, you know, if you go to the websites of Israel Museum and Israel Antiquities Authority, you can read all the scroll manuscripts with no trouble at all. If you can read Hebrew manuscripts, they're all there, free of charge, and, uh, and, you, and, and you can read them. Yeah, I was going to say, Brill, you might need one or two mortgages to take out, depending, depending on the book. No, you know, it's not, not a joke, because, you see, they're not aiming for people to buy these books. It's aimed for university libraries. So if you get somebody who has a university library entree to a type of university that has this type of research, they will can, you can even, they're even entitled to download this, because they pay so much money, they're allowed to download the whole book. Right, but this is it's a different kind of marketing than what people are, are used to. And there is no by the way, in Israel, I should tell you, wait a minute, there's a three volume free of charge online edition by Alicia Kimron. And what happened is I don't remember the exact title because he published a three volume work with um, Yad Ben Svi and Yushalayim, and then he revised it. And he had a lot of different manuscript readings than he had before. Now, I have to admit disagreeing with some of his manuscript readings. But at any rate, right, uh, the uh, Kimron, three volumes of the whole thing of the non-biblical in Hebrew, is available free. And if somebody really wants it and they can't find it online, they can email me and I will, uh, I will be happy to uh, send them. But I, the, pe the punishment is if you want to email me, you'll have to go to the NYU website because I only want someone who's serious. I'll send him the thing. I just if anyone puts me on a list, I'll kill him. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. So, so basically, maybe that also has to be part of the reason why people, you know, the general public, especially in the Orthodox firm world, which is not really in university, don't know much about it because it's so inaccessible, like you're saying, unfortunately. Well, I, I have to say that's only a part reason. The the right. reason's a little bit more complicated because general knowledge among Jews about the, the scrolls is quite is 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 quite common. I think, and, and this is something which bothers me a lot, there seems to be a strange fact with all the wonderful Judaic studies research that's being done, the people who should be most interested in it are exposed to it the least. This has to do with the educational system. Besides the educational system, it has to do with the press, which is why I'm so happy to write in Omni magazine because they don't take that position. But the reality is that even those, those, those people that are interested, and by the way, even in Inyan Magazine of Hamudia has some good articles on issues like this once in a while. But the reality of the situation is that what's happened is 
that the, uh, the, the people who are, should be most interested are often exposed the least to this stuff. And also, let's be honest about it, it does involve opening up some concepts on which the, the simplistic views that many people hold will be shown not to be exactly the whole story. And that's a different matter. It will give you a, a perspective on a lot of things with a, a, when you have a wider understanding of the historical things that were going on at the time and, and how they interact. So it's a little bit complicated. Right. And as, as someone mentioned, you just actually wrote an article, a very nice article in Army Magazine this, this past edition. So uh, which people, which people can read. So, yeah, I'd I mean, say the, the, yeah, I mean, the, the thing about these articles, it's wonderful to write these articles. The problem is, of course, that the news pushes the articles off. And you have to wait for a holiday or a special occasion to get these kind of articles in. And of course, I understand their problem. And working with them is always nice. And it gives me a, a, an opportunity to expose things to a, a wider audience. Most of those articles are available on my website, by the way, from the past on the blog of my website. And people might want to sign up for that. And, uh, but I would say that, that this question of the fact that large segments of the from community have very little idea of what these things are about not just the Dead Sea Scrolls, but many other very important things. It's kind of unfortunate. They, they sort of like absorb them in a secondary way without even realizing it. This has certainly been true about the, the Geniza. Or another example of that is the, the absorption of the idea that scholars developed, academics developed, that the, based on two Maccabees rather than one Maccabees, that the, the Maccabean revolt started with an inner battle over whether to Hellenize or not. And this has been internalized in all kinds of religious Jewish contexts today, right? You see it in all kinds of svarim. But actually, if you would have gone back 100 years ago, they would have just thought before some academics wrote, uh, and they would have just thought that the anti-Semitic guy got up one day on Teochus and started persecuting the Jews because he hated Jews. And that was the simple story. Today, people don't realize the extent to which the, 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 what, what is in one and two Maccabees, and especially two Maccabees, has been absorbed within the Frum community, but they don't know where it comes from. So they don't even know, they don't realize it. So I'm not, I'm, what I'm saying is that I think that uh, it's going to stay, it's not about the money that it costs to buy the books, because if the market was there, the books would exist. I mean, they just go to any one of these websites selling Sparm today. Things are coming out every day, but it's not this stuff. Right. No, exactly. I mean, that's true. So I was going to mention the Caravisa. Getting a little feedback. I'm, 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 that's why part of the reason I went to the show with you, I hope people understood a little more if they didn't know about it. We're going to have a show on Caravisa. Many people have no idea what that is either. So. Well, by the way, you know, here's a very funny fact. You go to Israel and you go to any archaeological site. The number of from people there is enormous. So actually, I was in Caesarea. NYU was involved in a project connected with Caesarea. And I was in Caesarea for several days in a row. And I saw this from guy standing there. And I went up to him and I said, tell me, what very famous rabbi lived here? And he answered. He said, Rabbi Abahu. So you see, I was wrong. He knew. But you see, you go, but there are a lot of from tourists in all these places, and including Qumran and including in the Shrine of the Book. I think it's a little bit different in, in, in Israel, maybe. But uh, the reality of the situation is that many people have been to these places even, and yet somehow or another they don't make the right connection. Right. So to end off, if people want to learn more about it, you said buying your, your book, Reclaiming the Dead Sea Scrolls, that book is affordable and, and available? Well, yeah, that's a good place to go. By the way, there are some other very good books about the scrolls, which, um, you know, there's some, I mean, it's a problem because there's garbage and there's good stuff. I want to mention that the website of the Orion Center for the Study of the Dead Sea Scrolls 
of the Hebrew University has an awful lot of material. My site on academia.edu has many, many of my publications that are available to read free. And by the way, if people don't know about academia.edu, it's a place where scholars, yeah, the, someone has a question that I missed before. Is there any connection to Pismone with the idea of poetry? So let me explain. The Dead Sea Scrolls have enormous numbers of poems. This is the first step between the poetry of Tanakh and moving to what I always call proto-piyut. Proto-piyut is the poetry that comes into being in the time of the Gemara, much of which is in our Siddur, like Lakel Baruch Nimot Itenu. This is, this is poetry. People don't realize it. Kulam Ahuvim, Kulam Bururim, Kilam Giborim. And why do you have a kuf that Nusach Svard? Because once there was a whole alphabet. So these are poems. So then, then from that poem, that poetry, we go to the poetry of the real we call it Palestinian piyut. That's Kalir, where we just recited and recited and recited. And by the way, don't believe anyone who tells you that he was a Tana or a Rishon. He was Vadai lived in the 500s because he says it's 900 years since the Chorban. And he thinks the Chorban was in 424, according to traditional date, never mind whether it was or wasn't. He thinks it was in 424. So if it's 900 years from the Chorban, when is he living? He's telling you this. Art Scroll had it in the first sitter, and they took it out. They removed the truth to leave the incorrect information. But there's no question about it. That piyut comes next, and from that piyut, you get to the real medieval piyut. And so it's part, the Dead Sea Scrolls poetry is part of the, of the history, not just because the Dead Sea Scrolls, but rather because what the Dead Sea Scrolls in their many, many poems are showing you is the poetry of second and first century Jews in, in second, first century BCE. And you can see that when you see Ben Sira too, which is all written in poetry. Right, gotcha. I, I just did a show about the Kinnis uh, with a friend of mine. We discussed the Kalir. He went through that whole basic overview of that, the whole Sugio yeah. about, about when he lived. We just did that. Uh, Some of this stuff is actually humorous to scholars because he can't figure out why anybody's nervous about this. Like, it's blatantly obvious. He said it himself. So what, what are we talking about? I mean, somebody come on and said, Rambam didn't, didn't, didn't live when, they, when he really lived. I mean, what, what, what's the point of it? Right, well, he pointed out, because Tom says it, and that was the whole uh, discussion. So people yeah. do it for that reason. Yeah. Um, okay, anyways, th thank, thank you very much uh, for joining me. I'm going to try to link in the, when it's on the podcast and the show's notes to your book and the various websites that you'll send me. I'll put them in the notes. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good evening. Okay, good evening. Well.